This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. If you know anything about golf, you know that unlike other sports, it's marked by a culture of civility. There are a lot of rules for courtesy on the course, and trash-talking among professional players is rare. But for the past couple of years, a civil war has raged within professional men's golf, driven by a bold move by Saudi Arabia. This summer, sports fans and business analysts were stunned to learn that a deal had been struck to give the kingdom a dominant role in men's professional golf in the United States and Europe. The Saudi regime has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into golf, soccer, boxing, and Formula One racing in recent years, a practice human rights groups have termed sports washing, arguing that the Saudis hope to distract attention from the kingdom's many human rights abuses, including the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The Saudis effectively pressured U.S. golf executives into a partnership by forming their own golf circuit to rival the American PGA Tour. The Saudi-funded tour, called Live, featured different rules for competition, speakers blaring rock music on the course, and big-money contracts to lure some of the game's best players to the upstart league. Our guest, New York Times writer Alan Blinder, has followed the battle for the control of golf and the fallout from the agreement with the Saudis, which includes antitrust investigations by the Justice Department and members of Congress. Alan Blinder is currently a national correspondent for the New York Times covering education. He has reported from more than 35 states as well as Asia and Europe and spent four years as a sports reporter. Alan Blinder, welcome to Fresh Air. It's good to be here. Let's start with the Saudis. Um, As I mentioned, they've put a lot of money into pro golf and other sports. Put this in context for us. Is it clear why they're doing this? Well, I think the explanation for why they're doing this is very much in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, it's not like one explanation excludes others uh, from being possible. The official explanation we hear a lot from, from officials in Saudi Arabia is this is an effort to diversify the kingdom's economy. It's oil dependent. You know, they've, they've been looking for ways to be something besides just this oil-rich country. So there's that explanation, uh, and this is uh, seen as a pretty valid argument. I mean, they they are trying to diversify their wealth fund, but there are other explanations too. There's a view that the Saudis want to have a seat at the global table. They would like to have power and influence and be able to shape their own reputation and their own image. So there can be that element here of, again, they're more than just an oil-rich country. There's a view that... This is an effort to engage in what's called sports washing, where you use sports to sanitize your reputation, to clean up your act, to be seen as something else. And then there's just the old sport philosophy here of they just want to, you know, revitalize a game that can feel a little stale and a little cold sometimes and bring it some new life and some new energy. So it might be one of those explanations. It might be all those explanations. But there are a lot of different theories floating around out there. You know, I mentioned human rights abuses in the intro and, and the murder of, you know, the journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, just remind us what are some of the other issues are that has earned the kingdom such condemnation. I mean, you, the, the, there have been decades of, of problems surrounding 
the kingdom's treatment uh, of gay and lesbian people. There have been decades of problems surrounding the kingdom's treatment of women. Uh, it's it, it, there is there's the war in Yemen. There there are any number of issues that have have caught uh, Western attention over the years and and led the kingdom at times to being something of a pariah state. A key figure on the Saudi side of this thing is a fellow named Yasir al-Ramayan. Tell us about him. He is the governor of the Public Investment Fund, which is Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund. He is a golf fanatic himself, loves the game, uh, but he's this is his first real foray into the professional world of golf. You know, he is a, a figure who has been charged with trying to to really elevate the Saudi investment portfolio. He's very close to the crown prince, who is the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. Um, and he has his hands in a lot of different things. Uh, you know, he is the chairman of a, of a Ramco, for instance, uh, the, the state oil company. I mean, this is not a guy who's just sitting there working on one on one fund for Saudi Arabia. He is one of the principal figures in the Saudi Arabia economic strategy. Right. And you mentioned this public investment fund, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. How big is it? Oh, it's many, many hundreds of billions of dollars at this point. They were looking to have, I think it was $1 trillion under management by 2025. It's among the world's largest wealth funds. All right, so plenty of money, uh, an interest in developing, you know, bringing more visitors, modernizing, diversifying the economy. You know, when, when the Saudis launched this rival tour uh, called Live, they threw a lot of money in it, into it to attract players. Um, so much money. Yeah, it's it was remarkable. But the other side of this is that you know those players had grievances of their own against the existing golf league that dominates the United States and Europe, the PGA Tour. What were some of the players' grievances about the PGA? Tell us a bit about how it's organized and what the problems were. So the PGA Tour is based in Florida, and it has been around for a number of decades. It came out sort of really emerging during the Lyndon Johnson administration. And the grievances surrounding the PGA Tour were essentially that they didn't pay players enough money, players didn't have enough control, the the demands of, of, of the tour schedule were too much. And there were a number of players who were just tired of it. They they saw executives who were getting enormous salaries, uh, not as enormous as some players' as salary, as some players' as compensation. The thing about the PGA Tour, though, is because of how it was structured, players didn't earn salaries through golf tournaments. They could earn prize money, but how they earned their living was entirely dependent on performance. There were no guarantees. So you could actually wind up being a professional golfer, play in a golf tournament, and lose money if you, know, you didn't make the cut. If you didn't advance to weekend play, you'd be out your expenses for the week. Um, I mean, there was plenty of money to be had if you were a top golfer, but there were a lot of folks, even some of the, even some of the wealthiest, most popular golfers in the world, who felt like the system wasn't fair enough. Right. You know, and it is interesting to just take a moment on this. You know, if you're kind of an average player in Major League Baseball or the National Basketball Association and you're on a team and and if the team goes to an away game, you go, you travel with the team, all your expenses are paid. And even if the coach never puts you in the game or if you go in and perform fully, your salary is guaranteed and your expenses are covered. 
By contrast, a golfer goes to a tournament. He has to pay his own expenses, brings a caddy, maybe somebody else if they're if they're big enough to have like a coach with them. Um, and as you say, you know, if if after two rounds they're not in the the first half of the of, of the, the leaderboard, they're cut. They get nothing, not even travel money. It's a really big big difference, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are golfers are independent contractors. And that is a key part of this entire debate. Golfers said, we want to be able to choose where we play, when we play, how we play. We're independent contractors. We should be allowed to do that. But yeah, I mean, there is there is a lot less financial certainty that comes with being a professional golfer than a lot of other professional athletic endeavors. It's It's a fairly remarkable system. If you think about it, you know, these golfers are generally – their own pitchmen, essentially. There's a reason you see them doing so many endorsement deals. They do so many press conferences. It's because they are their own brands. There is no team, generally speaking, for them to fall back on. Tiger Woods is Tiger Woods. Phil Mickelson is Phil Mickelson. Rory McIlroy is Rory McIlroy. They are the brand, the show, the whole shebang. So before this tour was launched by the Saudis, um, they spent a lot of time and effort trying to form a partnership with the PGA. They wanted to get involved. How did the PGA respond? They basically gave them the cold shoulder. The PGA tour was pretty content to do its own thing and was happy to rebuff any kind of investment by the Saudis. They they had no interest in doing business with them. Right. So the Saudis um, – led by this guy who heads their public investment fund, um, Yasir al-Ramayan, said, okay, we're going to – we're in effect going to declare war. We're going to form our own tour and we're going to invite some of the top players in your tour to join ours. They called this tour LIV. That's capital L-I-V. You want to explain the name? L-I-V is the Roman numeral uh, for 54 and LIV Golf plays 54-hole tournaments unlike – the 72-hole events that are traditionally what we see at PGA Tour events in the four major championships, which are the Masters Tournament, the PGA Championship, the U.S. Open, and the British Open. So the Saudis decide to launch this tour to rival the, the PGA, this established circuit that's been around for so long. And they didn't play small. They had hundreds of millions to offer, and they wanted to recruit some big players. Um, how did they do? They, uh, depending on, on on your favorite player, they did pretty well. Um, Phil Mickelson, who is a six-time major tournament winner, he won the Masters three times, uh, one of the most celebrated, popular golfers of his generation, or frankly any other, was probably Liv's marquee signing. And, and what, did we, what did we think they paid him? It was reportedly in the $200 million guaranteed range. Right. Now, that, that's in addition to any winnings he might encounter on the tour, right? That's that's a, just a guaranteed payment? It's significant money and the, wow. and the kind of money you don't normally see in professional golf. So you had players like Phil Mickelson. You had other stars, maybe not as famous as Phil Mickelson. So they really built this roster of big stars, big names, but – People over on the PGA Tour like to note a lot of people who you'd probably never heard of. But yeah, there were some big names. This got nasty, right? How how did the tour and its leading players 
react publicly to this effort by the Saudi Arabians? Oh, it was an absolutely ascetic reaction from the PGA Tour. Players were suspended. Uh, they were told, you may not participate. And this gets into a lot of the the challenges and legalese of being a membership organization, a voluntary membership organization, and how TV rights work and what kinds of promises are made to sponsors and and so on and so forth. But no, players were suspended uh, if they if they defected to live. And some of the players who remained loyal to the PGA Tour were just absolutely stinging in their criticism. Some of them took a more moral stance of, you know, arguing that Saudi money was tainted money. Some of them, like Tiger Woods, just flatly, you know, lampooned how, how live golf has played, you know, this whole 54-hole, no-cut philosophy. I mean, there were just, there were any number of routes people took to condemn live players for, for making the switch. So let's talk for a moment about what the live tournaments were like, because this is interesting. If you follow golf at all, uh, you know, the the traditional PGA t- tournaments were, you know, four rounds of 18 holes, and, you know, half the half the field was cut after the first two if you, you, you didn't do so well. Um, live was very different, right? I mean, w- one of the things was music on the golf course. Oh, I mean, there is music on the golf course. There are concerts after rounds. They got players wearing shorts, which is a much bigger deal than you might think it would be if you're not a golf fan. You've got what's called a shotgun start where players essentially don't – in a PGA Tour event, players just go out in order as the day goes on. They they start on the first hole. They play 1 through 18. A shotgun start, you'd have players all over the course, and they would they would just start from from there. So maybe you started on the 15th hole, you'd go 15, 16, 17, 18, then back to the first hole. And it, it, it what it did was it created an entirely different dynamic to the play and to you know the the, the television product. You didn't have to watch an all day golf tournament; you could watch for a couple hours and see the entirety of the live round. But yeah, the dynamic was entirely different. I mean, you know, you're used to going to uh, to PGA Tour events and to the traditional majors, and they're very starchy affairs. And uh, that is not a word I think anyone would ever use at a live golf tournament. And you know, there is this tradition in golf that that fans. I mean, they're asked to be quiet when a, when a player is about to hit a shot, whether it's a a full swing or a putt, and everybody knows kind of the, the announcer's golf voice. We're here at a big moment on the 10th green, that, that kind of thing. So at a live tournament, are they playing music over speakers while players are trying to concentrate and hit their shots? Generally, off in the distance, you might hear some of that. And, you know, fans were expected to be quiet when players are hitting their shots. But the whole mantra of live, their slogan is actually golf but louder. Like the idea is that this is a... Fan-friendly, you know, youthful extravaganza of golf. So it's an entirely different vibe, and it's you know, it, it works for some people and not for others. The the other thing that's, that was different about the Live Tour is that, in addition to playing an individual tournament at, at which, you know, the lowest score won the biggest prize, there were teams. I mean, they actually had teams with uh, of of four golfers apiece. Uh, what, what were some of the team names? I mean, there was the the high flyers and the range goats and and iron heads. Like they 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 were these. It was essentially a franchise model within golf. When 
golf is not a sport where we see a lot of team play outside of high school and college golf. I mean, you'll you'll have the Ryder Cup coming up later this month featuring teams from the United States and Europe, but team golf is just not a thing that we see very often in the professional ranks. So, so you got all these players on the course. They, they all start at the same time, so they're playing, and music is playing, and they're in shorts. And then they're also there's this team competition, what, five teams on the course. I, I don't know how exactly you would keep track of this. Um, they've had some events in the United States. They had a whole tour last year, and, they, they, and, and they've begun uh, in 22 and 23. Um, what's, what has fan attendance been like? Have people you know, lot clicked into this? Fan attendance has been one of the great questions surrounding live. They don't get nearly the crowds that major golf tournaments get. At the same time, they do get crowds out there. Um, they do get audiences, and what they've failed to do, though, is really break through in a meaningful way on television. They don't have a deal on TV with one of the big networks that, you know, the PGA Tour, you can usually find on NBC or CBS. Live Golf was being played on the CW network. Which until it brought golf, until it brought Live Golf in was not a sports network. It was mostly known for like Gilmore Girls and that kind of thing. So the the access to Live has not been nearly as uh, as prolific as the PGA Tour. Now the other interesting part of this story is one Donald Trump, the ex president, um, who is a golf nut and owns a bunch of courses. Um, where did he fit into this story? Well, one of the challenges for Live Golf was that a lot of really top-tier courses were long affiliated with PGA Tour and therefore essentially declared their loyalty to the to the to the heritage brand if you will. So so they weren't going to host these upstart live tournaments, right? No, they were they didn't want the condemnation, they didn't want to fracture their relationship with PGA Tour. So Live needs golf courses and they need very good golf courses. And as it so happens, Donald Trump owns a lot of very good golf courses. Whether you like his politics or not, his portfolio of golf courses is probably among the world's best. So he embraced Liv? He absolutely embraced Liv. I think you could argue he was one of Liv's biggest cheerleaders. I mean, he hosted Liv tournaments at his course in Bedminster, New Jersey. He hosted in Doral, Florida. He hosted outside of Washington. And not only was his property serving as host, Trump himself was often showing up and playing in, in pro-am events and watching rounds and talking to golfers. I mean, he was, not, I wouldn't call him a mascot for Liv, but he was a presence around Liv. Still is. And at one of the tournaments at Bedminster, I think I read that it sort of turned into a MAGA rally, right? I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene showed up. I mean, <laughs> is this what Liv thought they were getting? You know, I'm not sure if Liv knew what it was <laughs> quite getting, but... They knew they needed really top-flight golf courses, and Trump had them. And, of course, there's a school of thought out there saying, you know, this is essentially a foreign government funneling money to a former president and possibly a future president. And people point a lot to the Trump family's ties to Saudi Arabia and look at this as an influence operation, and it may very well be. Liv has always explained this away as, well, we need good golf courses, and he has them. And it's fair to say that the traditional golf establishment kind of condemned and isolated Trump, didn't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, Trump has 
long wanted to be a golf power broker. And by some indications, he was actually getting a little closer to being there. He had, uh, his family had won the rights to host a PGA championship at the Bedminster course. There had been a women's U.S. Open. His family course in uh, in Scotland, Turnberry, longtime British Open course over the years. Like He has some spectacular properties, but after... January 6th in particular, Trump essentially became persona non grata in a lot of circles of professional golf. And the PGA Championship was pulled from Bedminster. The RNA, which organizes the British Open, has made quite clear it has no intention of going to Turnberry uh, anytime soon. So, you know, if Trump wanted to be around big time golfers and be a sports baron, Liv was a place he could go and do that. Let's take another break here and let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with Alan Blinder. He is a national correspondent for the New York Times. He'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. I'm Fresh Air producer Seth Kelly, popping into your podcast feeds to promote our latest Fresh Air Plus bonus episode. In 2022, our host Terry Gross talked to Bob Odenkirk following a heart attack he had on the set of his AMC cable series, Better Call Saul. I didn't see a white light. I didn't have a flashback on my life. I really had like a mind wipe. My Fresh Air colleague Susan Yakundi explains why this moment stuck out to her in the latest of our special producer postcard bonus episodes. You can hear it for yourself by subscribing to Fresh Air Plus at plus.npr.org. We're speaking with the New York Times national correspondent, Alan Blinder. For much of the past two years, he's covered a civil war of sorts in men's professional golf, spurred by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's creation of a new circuit of golf tournaments to rival the established PGA Tour in the U.S. The Saudis' extravagant spending and poaching of some of the game's best players ultimately led to an agreement to merge the PGA and the Saudi-backed tour called Live. The final terms of the new structure are yet to be negotiated. Well, the other thing that happened besides um, the war of words among traditional golf and the Live Tour, there was court action. I mean, Live sued the PGA and the PGA countersued. What was the heart of the legal issues here? It was essentially an antitrust case and whether the PGA Tour was playing fairly and whether it was stamping out competition improperly. And 
this was a nasty case with a lot of very well-paid lawyers uh, billing a lot of hours. And we were not really all that close to a trial, but the discovery was happening and there were depositions happening. And the Saudis had lost a couple things in this in this litigation. There had there had been questions about sovereign immunity. There had been questions, you know, about about access to records and that sort of thing. And there were some setbacks with the Saudis in court, but this was at, at its core an antitrust issue that would need to be decided. So the Saudis were saying, look, the PGA, you, you're, you're suppressing competition. They should have be able to choose, right? Exactly. I mean, the argument was that there is essentially one primary golf league for men's professional players in the United States, and the PGA Tour had a stranglehold on those players given the, the assorted rules and regulations that the PGA Tour required of its members. And one of the arguments you would hear time and again from live players was we are independent contractors. We should be allowed to play whenever and however we want to. And the argument and response from the PGA Tour and its allies would be, well, it's a condition of being in this membership organization, which, you know, markets group television rights and sponsorship deals. And it's, it's, it's a voluntary agreement. You can't pick and choose. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the, the view of the PGA tour was you cannot just choose when you want to be a, a member of this, of this organization, because Look, if you're the PGA Tour and you're going to broadcast partners or potential sponsors, you want to be able to say, we're going to have these tournaments, players X, Y, and Z will be there. Well, that becomes a lot harder to pitch people on when player X might be doing something else that weekend. The battle lines were drawn in this dispute. You know, the PGA was condemning the live golfers for selling out to Saudi Arabian money and the... And the live golfers had their own kind of argument, you know, oh, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. And and then suddenly, it seemed, earlier this summer, there is an announcement June that 6th. the two sides have agreed. Uh, before we talk about how the deal was struck, let's talk about what convinced each side it was in its interest to lower their guns and cooperate. What convinced the PGA to give up its fight? Well, the PGA Tour is all too eager to say that it does not have nearly the financial resources of the Saudi Wealth Fund, and it was spending somewhere on the order of $40, $50 million a year on legal expenses, and they didn't find this kind of arms race sustainable with the Wealth Fund. They didn't find that they would be able to keep up in the long term with the prize money and the contracts. Uh, and they wanted this litigation to end. The, the PGA Tour thought this was a way out of some very nasty litigation that was costing it a fortune. And the Wealth Fund also saw a way out of litigation that was not always going in the direction it wanted. And by the way, they would also get a seat at the table of Global Golf. The two sides, while they were fighting a war of words, actually began talking. This began when James Dunn, known as Jimmy Dunn, the golfers actually contacted Yasir al-Rumayan, and there began a whole series of very private meetings. Just tell us a little bit about how that unfolded. I mean, these unfolded like a spy novel, to be honest with you. I mean, there was a secret meeting in Britain. There was a secret meeting in Venice. There was a secret meeting in San Francisco, and then one in New York. And these were these private talks between... PGA Tour officials and the Wealth Fund about what 
you know, some kind of joint venture might look like. Totally cloak and dagger. I mean, there was one instance when they were meeting in Venice. Uh, Jay Monahan was out for breakfast, and he he saw another leading professional sports figure, and basically found himself ducking under a table to avoid being noticed, as he told people later. Um, yeah, it was these these negotiations were not carried out in public. They were they were entirely private. There were rounds of golf. There were long dinners, long lunches. You know, all night negotiation sessions, basically. Um, all in, in hopes of reaching a deal, and they thought that if if word of this leaked, the whole thing would fall apart. Rounds of golf, meaning the negotiators themselves went out for a round after after talks, and then continued talking. Oh yeah, I mean it's a social lubricant for these guys. One of these meetings happened at the wedding of was it a Formula One race car driver in Venice? <laughs> it was the uh, there was a Formula One related wedding in Venice, and Yasser Arumayan was attending the wedding. So Jay Monahan, the PGA Tour commissioner, flew into Venice, and they met kind of on the sidelines of the wedding. He, uh, Jay wasn't at the wedding himself, but um, it was where Arumayan was going to be. So Monahan went to Venice and met him there. You know, one of the things you wrote in writing about the negotiations, that when they spoke, they agreed upon a point of harmony that would shape the negotiations. Neither man insisted on a non-disclosure agreement. What did, what did that mean? What were they agreeing not to keep secret? The absence of a non-disclosure agreement really helped set the tone for the talks. It helped, they thought, establish trust between the two sides and the idea that, you know, maybe – they didn't have to be sworn enemies on every on every little thing. It just it, it was mostly important for for establishing a baseline level of trust that had to that point been absent. So, I mean, you've written and others about how there was these cloak and dagger meetings between one of the board members from the PGA, a guy named James Dunn, Jimmy Dunn, to to golfers, and he meets with. Uh, Yasir Al Ramayan, and there's a there's a series of conversations. This was all done in a very quiet way. The PGA Commissioner Jay Monahan eventually became involved, but the players on on in the PGA who had really staked their reputation on defending the PGA and saying that they were they had the right side of this were totally blindsided when they learned that the PGA hadn't said, "Ah, never mind. We're going to work with the Saudis anyway." Yeah, I mean, the the best example of this is probably Rory McIlroy, one of the world's finest golfers, and he's a member of the PGA Tour's board. So this is not a guy who, um, you know, was used to being cut out of big conversations about golf's future, and he had been one of the PGA Tour's leading figures in this in this fight against Live Golf. Rory found out about the deal between the Wealth Fund and the PGA Tour the morning it was announced. And he's on the board. So let's talk about what this deal actually is. I mean, it's not a merger because the details haven't been worked out yet. Um, what exactly have the two sides agreed to do? Well, the the line they like to trot out is that they've reached an agreement to reach an agreement. And the idea behind behind this deal, if it comes to pass in the end, is they will create – a new for-profit entity that will be called PGA Tour Enterprises. And essentially, they're going to house the golf businesses of the PGA Tour, of the Saudi Wealth Fund, and the DP World Tour, which is formerly uh, the European Tour, all in this one for-profit company 
in the end Goths Civil War. The idea, it's not a merger. They view it more as a joint venture uh, than anything else. They, they don't like the word merger for assorted legal reasons. But no, the idea is that they will bring all of these, these former rivals into one single company. Jay Monahan, the PGA Tour commissioner, will be the CEO of the company. Yasaru Mayan, the head of the wealth fund, will be the chairman of the board. Uh, and and there will be significant Saudi influence there. And one of the PGA Tour board members said before Congress, if I'm recalling correctly, that they anticipated that the Saudis would invest something north of $1 billion into the venture. Yeah, uh, there there was a – during a congressional hearing uh, back in July, we heard a PGA Tour executive throw out that number, which wasn't really surprising given the amount of money the Saudis had already invested in golf. But yeah, we're – we're looking at an investment north of a billion dollars from Saudi Arabia, but how many billions? We have no idea at this point. So let's, let's kind of step back and, and try and get a sense of what this actually means. You know, this has been presented by some as Saudi oil money effectively buying, taking over men's professional golf. Is it fair to look at it that way? I think there is a, there is a world in which you can look at that it that way. I mean, the the argument the PGA Tour makes against that argument is that Jay Monahan will still be the chief executive of this new outfit. The PGA Tour will control a majority of board seats in this new outfit. The PGA Tour will control what's known as the inside the ropes dynamics of golf tournaments. So they'll be figuring out what competitions look like and how the game is played and that sort of thing. And the counter argument to that is, well, when Yasser Arumayan is the chairman of the board and the Saudis hold first right of refusal on investments, they control the purse strings. So it's not quite as uh, as clear cut in terms of you know American control as, as the PGA Tour might like to say it is. That's the argument that goes back and forth. The Saudis have first right of refusal on investments. What exactly does that mean? Essentially, the Saudis can decide from the start how money is invested into this new company, uh, this this new PGA Tour Enterprises. So they will have extensive influence over the money that flows into this operation. So for now, the, the, the two tours are – they will remain in existence, right? So it's not like they're folded together. They're, yeah. Right? I mean, as of now, there's a live event uh, this month in Chicago or outside of Chicago. The PGA Tour still has its own schedule and its own events. They are separate entities at this moment. And has the trash talking stopped? I mean, it's abated a little bit. I don't think it, in private it hasn't stopped, I'll tell you that much. Hmm. What are you hearing in private? I mean, this is people are still saying, look, think about what Rory McIlroy said in public. He said he still hates live. This is a member of the PGA Tour reports saying he still hates live golf as a concept. He's accepting of the idea that live golf and, and Saudi money might be an important thing to, to keep around, you know, for, for the growth of the game or the good of the game or whatever you want to call it. But he has said flatly, he hates live golf. So that should give you a window into what people are still thinking. Wow. Let's take another break here, then we'll talk some more. We're speaking with the New York Times national correspondent, Alan Blinder. We'll continue this conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. 
Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com slash thematic investing. You know, part of the condemnation of the Live Tour came from families of 9-11 victims who felt that the Saudi government's role was never fully disclosed and, you know, you know condemned the, the golfers for having this association. Uh, there's an irony in this in that Jim, Jimmy Dunn, the PGA official who really led the negotiations with the Saudis, had a special connection to 9-11, didn't he? So Jimmy Dunn is a board member for the PGA Tour and a very prominent banker in New York. And his firm at the time had offices uh, at the World Trade Center and a number of employees died in the attacks of 9-11. And Jimmy Dunn was at a golf tournament the day of the attacks in 2001. So he was not was not harmed, but he has spent the last 22 years essentially thinking about what happened that day and how it affected the people he had worked with and known. And and what did he say when asked about this, about dealing with the Saudis after that long history? His defense was that there was no indication that someone like Yasser Aramayan was directly involved in 9-11. And he always said, Dunn always said, that if, if he met a Saudi who was directly involved in the attacks, he'd be the first person to go after him. But he didn't think you could paint an entire society uh, for a single action. Right. He said, I'd kill him myself, actually. I think that was the comment, yes. It got some attention, yeah. So while there is this agreement, it could fall apart. I mean, we don't know that they're going to come to final terms, but there's a commitment to try and do so. But the Justice Department and members of Congress say they are very interested in pursuing antitrust issues here. Um, what exactly are they after and what might happen? So the Justice Department was interested in men's professional golf before June 6th, which is when we learned of this deal between the Wealth Fund and the PGA Tour. They were already talking to professional golfers, looking to see if the PGA Tour had been suppressing labor markets or anything like that. So they were already golf was already on the radar of the Justice Department. Then this deal comes out, and then there's a question of, well, are you essentially constructing a monopoly, a bigger monopoly now? Um, so in a lot of ways, the legal questions around professional golf got 
bigger, not smaller, after this deal. There is a chance, there is a universe in which we could see the Justice Department try to block this arrangement if it comes to pass. That has not happened yet. It could, though, and some experts expect that they will try to challenge it. As for Congress, Congress pretty promptly looked to set up a hearing on this. I think we were in Washington on July 11th, so just a bit more than a month after this deal was announced. And there was a Senate subcommittee hearing where they were grilling PGA Tour officials, trying to understand how the PGA Tour could have made this deal with the Saudi Wealth Fund. And just recently, that same subcommittee issued a subpoena to the Wealth Fund for documents and information after Mr. Albert Mayan essentially refused to testify. What kind of information do they want, and why? And why? Why, why are they? They want know? financial records. They want documents. They want to under. They, I mean, the argument the Senate makes is that golf, sports are an essential part of American culture. You've got a, a, a sovereign wealth fund looking to invest and bring serious money into sports, into American business. Therefore, Congress has a right and a duty to look at what's happening here. So far, the Saudis have, uh, let's just say, had limited interest in talking to Congress. They've offered you know, some information, some briefings, that sort of thing. But in terms of what Congress has really wanted, which is the governor of the Sovereign Wealth Fund at a witness table on Capitol Hill, that hasn't gone anywhere yet. You know, I can see an argument that maybe you don't want a foreign government owning critical defense manufacturers or technology firms. But, you know, if they run the pro golf tour, I mean, who cares? <laughs> you know, we've asked that question and Congress has essentially told us that they they think there is a prerogative and that there can be national security concerns and things like where golf courses are located and whatnot. But the big argument they make is they want to understand why the Saudis are trying to get into American sports and use power in that way. It's a soft power play. Well, Alan Blinder, thanks so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Alan Blinder is a national correspondent for The New York Times, now covering education. Coming up, David B. and Cooley reviews the new season of the Apple TV Plus series, The Morning Show. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. The Morning Show is back. The Apple TV Plus series starring Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston as on-air talent for the fictional UBA network. The first two episodes of the new third season premiered last week. Among the show's changes this season, Mad Men star John Hamm is a new cast member. Our TV critic David Bian Cooley has this review. 
The second season of the Apple TV Plus series The Morning Show ended with the employees and executives of the fictional UBA network fighting their way through various crises, including the outbreak of COVID and a variety of corporate and personal scandals and dramas. To begin Season 3, The Morning Show producers, led by series creator Jay Carson and series developer Carrie Aaron, jumped the action forward two years. More and more TV shows are pulling this trick. It allows them to reboot the narrative, delay the explanation and exposition, and reveal the storylines not only by moving forward, but by flashing back. I'll skip the flashback elements. As for the morning show going forward, the show's crisis mode has only accelerated. This year, it's dialed up to 11. John Hamm plays Paul Marks, an Elon Musk-type billionaire, and his interest in acquiring UBA throws everything and everyone into disarray. It's a deal initially brokered under the radar and behind the scenes by UBA executive Corey Ellison, played by Billy Crudup with all sorts of masterful shadings of bravado and insecurity. Corey has gotten Paul to make a bid for UBA, but at a price. Paul has made a backdoor deal with Corey for his UBA star talent Alex Levy, played by Jennifer Aniston, to take a live televised trip with Paul on the maiden voyage of Paul's personal space shuttle. UBA's on the bubble. COVID saved your ass, and I, I am offering a 20% premium on top of market value, and you are lucky to get that. You are lucky to get me, because I built a pyramid during a pandemic. That's undeniable, and so am I. You started a streaming platform at the beginning of a global lockdown. Care to speculate what might happen when the world decides it's time to get back to business? Well, I'm starting with launching the first female journalist into space. Haven't you heard? I'm launching her. It's my rocket. She's my journalist. It's not long before Alex finds out about the deal and her part in it. She confronts Corey, who tries to defend himself by explaining things from his perspective. The world as we know it is over, Alex. We are officially in the Thunderdome. In five years, half of the streaming services, they'll be gone or bought out. In 10 years, the internet will be 3D. You will literally be in people's living rooms. We need to build a time machine to take us to the future. And that is gonna take real deep pockets. Someone with more money than God. And uh, Bill Gates, he won't return my call since I crushed him <laughs> in doubles at Sun Valley. So, Paul Marks, that's the hand that we have been dealt in this game of three card capitalism. And honestly, I'm happy to be at the table. I wanna play, I wanna win. In fact, I want to build something that matters even when nothing else does. With that guy, that's who you see for the future of UBA. Some need for speed hard ass from Silicon Valley. Well, we don't like his offer, we walk away. Alex, I mean, come on. You could just trust that I'm doing what's best for you. Right, I do, I forget that. I forget that you always have my best interest at heart. The morning show always has been a little over the top. But this season, it enriches itself by boring more deeply into a few major issues. The infighting of corporate intrigue, the exposing of institutional racism, the overwhelming cruelty of social media postings. And, in a particularly intense subplot, the attack on UBA by blackmailing computer hackers. The first episodes of Season 3, available now, dive into all of that and give its new and returning players a very deep pool in which to swim.
Last season, it was Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon who made the serious moments of the morning show land so well. They're still doing excellent work here. And this season, at the start, so is crewed up as Corey, whose empire is striking back. And it's also true of some co-stars who are given more central plot lines. Holland Taylor as a senior UBA board member, and Greta Lee as Stella, whose management position becomes increasingly untenable. Add to that the new contributions by John Hamm and others, and you have a morning show that's running better than ever. I'm talking, of course, about the one on Apple TV+. The one on UBA? That one's a train wreck. But like its Apple TV Plus counterpart, it's always an entertaining one. David Biancooley is professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new season of The Morning Show on Apple TV+. On tomorrow's show, we speak with comedian, writer, and actor Aparna Nancherla. Her new book of essays is part memoir and part cultural commentary. She writes about her life and career and the anxiety and depression she often talks about in her stand-up. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.